let us continue worship with a reading from Acts 16, 22 and 30. Paul and Silas in Philippi. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer awoke, he saw that, and he saw that the prison doors were open. He drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out in a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Hey, guys. Good morning. How's everyone doing? All right. Well, I'm glad you're here today. Uh, if you're a guest, welcome. My name's Chris. So we're in the middle of a conversation about uh, mission and purpose in the church. Uh, we recently actually changed our mission, mission statement, and we've been trying to explain and explore why we wanted to be a people declaring and delighting in the beauties of Jesus. Uh, why we wanted that phrase, that sentence, declaring and delighting in the beauties of Jesus, to be the guide and the anchor of this place and our hearts every week, and I've enjoyed it. And we've been kind of been looking at this from a 30,000 foot level, and today I wanna to zero in on one word uh, from the mission team, delight. That's the word I wanna zero in on today with you, okay? So let me pray for us, okay? And then let's jump in and ask God to speak to us. Father, I pray right now that you would loosen um, the chains of sorrow and despair and sin that are wrapping around hearts right now that cannot delight in you. Father, I pray for those who are walking right now through the valley of the shadow of death. Father, I pray for those hearts in this room that getting here was like climbing a mountain, just showing up is hard. Father, I pray for those in this room right now who lack any semblance of authentic joy in their life. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would meet us in our point of weakness, Lord. God, would you meet us in our need? God, would you uh, come and make us people with light in our eyes, God? Make us true Christians, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, delight, the word, means uh, to be pleased greatly, to find pleasure in. Something that delights you is a source of joy, it's satisfaction, a source of uh, pleasure. It gladdens you, it does your heart good. You relish it, you love it. I'm a parent. And there is a deep, almost indescribable feeling I get when I pull in the driveway and my kids freak out and run out of the street and they start telling me what's happening. I'm getting out of the door. I forget things in my car because they're telling me stuff. I'm like, okay, 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 right? Man, there's something about that that I can't even describe that no matter, almost no matter what kind of day I've had, like, I'm good. Like, I'm back. Because they are delighting in me, which, if you know, blows my mind, right? 
like I was just yelling at you like 10 hours ago. And, and now I get home and you are just so jacked to see me. Most grandparents have an unyielding delight, unyielding delight in their grandbabies, you know, right? Like, like they can't, can't help it, spoil them, rotten. Why? Because they spread so much delight to that old person, right? Every single one of us has the capacity to delight in, to take joy in. Y'all, it is hardwired in us. Life would not be worth living if you didn't have that capacity. And yet, experience, monotony, sorrow, grief, sin, fear, despair can effectively cauterize your your soul's capacity to be a delight-filled person. I get an amen on that, huh? You're going to live the little and realize that sometimes the darkness and the terror can sweep your feet out from underneath you, and you begin to wonder if you're ever going to be the kind of person who can be joyful again. Some of us are just locked out of being a joy-filled person. This world, this life, the experience, the jerks that you're, whatever, whatever, right? Just rob you of the ability to feel joy and delight. So today I just want to explore your capacity for joy and delight, being a, being a happy-hearted person, okay? And argue that only when the source of your joy becomes God himself, only when you begin to delight in, like our says, the beauties, the glory, the love of Jesus, will you ever know any kind of enduring joy. That's my claim. That's what I'm arguing, all right? So therefore, what we're kind of really trying to get at today, trying to explore is what is explicitly Christian joy, okay? And my, my premise is your ability to worship God, okay? So that word we got to, I mean, there's a lot of churchy words throwing out, Pastor, okay? Your ability to worship God, that means to locate your delight and joy on the finished work of Jesus, your ability, your willingness to delight in, give attention to the goodness of God will be fundamentally tied to your level of personal joy in your life. Okay, that's my premise. Or you can say it another way. If you're a Christian and find your life absent of joy and delight, no light in your eyes, man, right? The color of life has just bled off the pain of strength in your bones. You lack will, you lack energy, you lack drive. I would argue the real problem is that you have located your joy in life on something other than God. That's, that's my claim. I'm not really going to back down from it. That you've become blind to some realities about him and about you. And that blindness has resulted in God not seeming to be a legitimate source of joy to you. Can I say that again? You, you've become blind to some realities about you and about God. And that blindness has resulted in God not seeming to be a legitimate source of joy to your heart and soul. All right, so we're going to spend the rest of our time exploring what delighting in God means and its connection to your personal joy or lack thereof in life. So when we say delight or joy that is explicitly Christian, what do we mean? Okay? Well, let well, I me mean, just say, what well, would we, we, we not mean? What would we not mean? Okay, well, we're not talking about circumstantial blessing. We're not talking about fleeting happiness. We're, ta- we're not talking about the feeling you get when your team wins, okay? We're not talking about the feeling you get when you drive a new car off the lot. Love that feeling. Just fleeting. Doesn't last long. Like 10 minutes, then I'm like, you know, back to complaining in life, right? I'm talking about when we say joy that is explicitly Christian, we're talking about a deep, abiding sense of satisfaction, contentment that is not threatened by inconvenience or disappointment, okay? In fact, it's not threatened even 
given by heartache, sorrow, or disillusionment. The Bible is going to remind us that sorrow, suffering, and even, y'all, persecution and Christian joy can be happening at the same time. We're not talking about gluing a smile on your face. We're talking about something deeper that can be abiding in your soul when you are being beaten. Not talking about just some trivial thing that you feel when you drive a new car off the lot. This is something deeper than that. Christian joy is deeper than that, right? John Piper points out, we all know sequential joy. You know sequential joy? Sequential joy is a circumstantial joy. That means I was sad, and then this thing happened, and now I'm happy. That's sequential joy, right? And that's part of Christian joy. That's true, right? Weeping may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. That's sequential, and God gets into that. But the lion's share of Christian joy can and will be present simultaneously within adversity and sorrow and even suffering, all right? 2 Corinthians 6.10 says, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. What is he talking about, man? Christian joy can happen at the same time as sorrow and loss. It's why we read Acts 15 today. And it's why Paul and Silas can sing praises to God through swollen, bloody lips with chains, with their feet in chains in the middle of the night in the darkest, lowest prison there is. That's joy that is distinctly Christian, okay? We believe in a hope that is untouchable by anything. Not even death. That's Christian joy. Now, now, okay, all right, just all right, so everyone, before we get all happy, go lucky on, okay. That doesn't mean we will not endure horrible, regrettable, despicably sinful and sorrowful things in this life. It's not, not what it means, not what we're talking about, because we know by experience, number one, and we know by reading the New Testament, number two, that's not what it means to be a Christian, all right? So what it does mean is that even in the midst of crushing sorrow, disillusionment, pain, Suffering, we do not grieve as those without hope. That's what we're getting at. There's the focal point of Christian joy. Do we grieve? Absolutely we grieve. You kidding me? Absolutely we grieve. Do we suffer? Yeah. Christianity is not free pass out of suffering, man. We grieve, we suffer, but not as those without hope. And this is the source of our joy. I'm not talking about smiling when the, sheep, when the ship sinks, okay? It's not what we're talking about. We're talking about confidence that even after the ship sinks, God can raise it back up tenfold. Something deeper, all right? So some of you are aware that just a few weeks ago, we lost a dear member of our congregation, uh, Patricia Abraham. And I've never been to a more faith-filled funeral than the ones her kids put together. I was so deeply, profoundly encouraged by the faith in that room. Were there tears? Man, yeah, there were tears. Were we crying? Yeah, we were crying. But it wasn't absent of hope. I just came away from that just changed, man. Like I go to a funeral, I'm just crying. I'm sorry. I'm trying to say, hey, it's okay. We can grieve. And they were just like, man, we're going to rejoice in the life that was given. And it was one of the most profoundly, there's a palpable sense of a deeper, more substantial reality in the room right in the middle of sorrow and grief. That's Christian joy. It's Christian joy. See, If our worship and joy could be taken away by those things, suffering, sorrow, sickness, grief, then our God's no different than any other false God out there. Just as fragile, just as fleeting, and just as weak. It's only when Paul, we can say with Paul, 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we live our life by faith, not governed by what we see. Have we begun to get the opportunity 
of experiencing joy that is explicitly Christian. It's a very important logical step for us. Only when we can begin to say with Paul, we live our lives by faith, not by what we see, do you have a shot at explicitly Christian joy, okay? If you can't say that, I'm not sure you can experience what is explicitly joy because that joy sits on the foundation of faith. So when we say joy and delight, what we are talking about is what the Bible is getting at when it says things like whoever believes in Jesus, streams of living water will flow from within him. What we are talking about is what Jesus was talking about when he said, I've come that it may have life and have it to the full, abundantly, more than enough, overflowing life. That's what Jesus said. And if you're a Christian and those words feel alien to you, living water, abundant life, I would argue it is not a lack of know-how in you. It is not a lack of knowledge and it is not a lack of discipline. It is a lack of worship in your life. See, we've disconnected our joy from God and it's left us searching. Every single one of us, guy with the mic included. We've disconnected our sense of joy and life from God, and it has left us. We are, y'all, I mean, come on. We're so convinced there's some article out there with new data, some new discovery that's going to fix everything, aren't we? I mean, just obsessively searching the world over for something to redeem and give value to our life, right? Some missing key, right? Some missing, maybe it's a possession. It's probably a car, probably a new car, right? Maybe, maybe some missing knowledge, right, that will finally bring the sense of joy and relief and peace and order. And, and we have this idea that life should be good, right? And yet we find in our hearts and lives that it's not. And so we're left searching, Where's the source of that goodness? How can we restore that goodness to our lives? Well, it's by, you know, what is it, right? I mean, every, every documentary, right, every article about health or diet or exercise or politics, right, uh, we just gobble it up. Man, I saw one documentary that by the time I was done watching it, I was convinced that, like, every food was evil except vegetables, right? <laughs> I was like, this is it. This is the missing key in my life, you know? Tofu. Look, look, I'm not saying that stuff don't matter. I'm not saying that stuff, it does matter, all right? I'm not saying it doesn't matter. It does matter. What I am saying is the absence of true, lasting joy in your life is not primarily because of chemical imbalance. That, that could be, though. It could be there. I'm saying the, your lack of joy in life is not primarily because of diet, although that's going to affect it, dummy, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Right? It's, it's not, it's not your, the lack of joy in your life is not primarily because of lack of exercise, or even primarily because of a difficult season in your life. Although all that stuff is going to have effect, it is primarily because of a lack of authentic worship and your ability to delight in God. That is the root of why it feels like you're a dead man walking. Okay? You're locked out, man. You're locked out of this capacity. You understand what I'm talking about? Ability to delight in God is not... You feel it's like a cement door between you and that idea, right? It's like you, sin's just got you all. You can't. The missing element, y'all, is faith-saturated delight in God. That's the claim, and I'm not going to back down. Simply put, Christians that delight in Jesus, that worship Jesus, are Christians full of joy. Christians that don't are not. That's it. That's my premise, because here's the reality about the search for joy and delight in your life and in my life. You are already in hot pursuit of something. 
right? Right? Like, delight, joy, right? Like, it's worship. It's happening in your life, whether you call yourself a Christian or not. Because remember, worship just means ascribing worth. That's all it means. Worship it just means calling something beautiful. That, that's valuable. That's awesome. That, that's a form of worth. Ascribing value to something. That's worship. It means believing that something is a legitimate source of goodness and expressing it. Chipotle, legitimate source of goodness, right? What is it? That restaurant you found, that movie you saw, what are you doing in that moment? You are, you're, you're praising. We praise each other. We praise mountains. We praise, I'm going to read that in a second from C.S. Lewis, right? It's, it's giving voice to the greatness of something, giving voice to the worth of something. When we worship, we give our devotion, our energy, our affections, our hopes to something. And when we give it to lesser gods, our joy shrivels up like a raisin in the heat of the day. When you worship things like health or success in business or financial security or popularity or beauty or sex, not only does your joy sit on the edge of a knife, right? But eventually when that does fall over, you, your life is shattered because you've located your joy. You've located your delight and value on something that wasn't, it didn't have the structural density to sustain it. Just crumbles in on itself. You know what I'm talking? That's how. I mean, let's just let's just think about it for a second. Let's think about how fragile popularity is these days, right? You just post the wrong thing, and everyone hates you, and you're fired, right? I mean, talk about fragile, right? I mean, let's just let's talk about how. I mean, we're just convinced we have enough money in the bank; it will save us from everything. Let's talk about how the proverb is going to say wealth is worthless in the day of wrath, right? Like anyone else, just completely fascinated with the volatility of property value. Blows my mind. And when I, when I realized this, I'm just like, dude, money is made up. Like, this is crazy. This is bizarre, right? I mean, let's, let's have a real conversation about what makes your life stable. What makes your life joyful in any lasting way? Health? You want to talk about how unstable, right? You just got to sneeze in public these days, right? 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 You want, let's talk about beauty. Just ask your grandma, right? Ask your grandma how long beauty lasts, Right? The Bible's not going to mince words, man. It's going to call these competing joys idols. So it's going to call them. And the reality is, y'all, anything can be turned into an idol. Marriages, children, churches, jobs, friendships, goals, desires, youth, physical beauty, health, financial security. All of it can be turned into an idol. In this book, Counterfeit Gods, Timothy Keller defines an idol as any good thing turned into a supreme thing. Very important language. By building your happiness on it. And in turn, its demands override all competing values. Jobs can do that. Relationships, goals, desires can do that. Fears can do that. I'm terrified of this, and as long as I stay away from that, I'm happy. He adds, we think idols are only bad things. But that's almost never the case. The greater the perceived good, the more likely we are to expect it to satisfy our deepest needs and hopes. Anything can serve as a counterfeit God, especially the best things in life. Anytime we look at any other thing other than God and say to it, redeem me, establish me, secure my joy. I'll be honest with you. We do that with a lot, a lot of marriages, a lot of relationships. We look at them and we say, you make me happy. 
You fill me up. You secure my joy. Right? And the further we go down that path, the further our joy diminishes and the further they buckle under a pressure that only God can sustain. And they, will, they will hate you for expecting that out of because they're not God. Women make crummy gods. Men make crummy gods. And when we expect divine security and health and joy out of them, they will crumble under the pressure. Okay, so when we talk about delighting in Jesus, we aren't talking about a Sunday service as a flicker on the radar compared to what we're talking about. We are talking about your natural tendency to place joy on things and instead placing that on the hope of Christ, placing your joy on Jesus. What I'm telling you is praise and worship, the desire to locate your joy on something saturates humanity. The question has never been, do you worship? The question has always been, what are you worshiping? So when we say worship, you may think of religious buildings or bowing down before some figure or incense or religious rituals, but worship is not a religious byproduct. It is a human condition. Worship is not a religious byproduct. It's a human condition. We worship. Let me remind you of the prevalence of worship in the human experience. C.S. Lewis, reading from um, Reflections on the Psalms, he says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is, its con- is it, it is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. And it's frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good it is or to come suddenly at the turn of a road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than a ditch, right? To hear a good joke and find no one to share it with. The Scotch Catechism says that, the, that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But we shall then know that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify God, he is inviting us to enjoy him. Let me read you this a little bit more because it's so good. (laughs) All enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. Unless, sometimes even if, shyness or the fear of boring others is deliberately brought in to check it. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game, praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians and scholars. I had not noticed, I had not noticed, this is profound, how the humblest and at the same time most balanced and capacious minds brought, right, Praised most, while cranks, misfits, and malcontents praised least. The good critics found something to praise in many imperfect works. The bad ones continually narrowed the list of books we might be allowed to read. The healthy and unaffected man, even if luxuriously brought up and widely experienced in good cookery, could praise a very modest meal, but the snob found fault with all. Listen to this sentence right here. Except where intolerably adverse circumstance interfere, praise 
almost seems to be inner health made audible. I love that, man. He's he's getting at your capacity to look at something and say, that's beautiful. You know, like too cool for school thing? You know that thing? That's adolescent. That's adolescent. He's talking about the maturity of your heart and soul to be able to see something and call out its beauty. Why don't we do it? Why don't we affirm? Why don't we praise? I tell you why, because you're insecure. That's why. And you think if you give away the affirmation and if you give away the praise and if you give away the words of security, what's going to secure you? How are you going to be secured? How are you going to feel lifted up? How are you going to feel happy? Right? That's why we don't. Some people enjoy living in a state of seeing and rejoicing in good things. And some people cannot. They do not. They don't have eyes to see. He says, cranks, complainers, those who feel victimized by everything, for whom the world is always half empty. They lack joy, not because the things they see, but because of the way they interpret the things they see, and therefore lack joy in a deep and ingrained way. And conversely, Lewis points out, those who can praise things outside themselves experience a kind of joy he calls inner health made audible. And if that's true, it begs the question, are you healthy? Is your soul healthy? Do you routinely praise noble and praiseworthy things and invite others into that enjoyment? Or are you the, only, are you the kind of person who only sees cracks and shadows? And if simple childlike practice of recognizing and enjoying beauty, just general beauty, yields joy on the material level, which it does, right? How much more will joy enter when we see and worship what we were created to worship? When our souls begin to delight in God himself for all his abundant goodness, right? So like I said, I know it may seem counterintuitive that giving, pouring out, pointing out someone else's greatness and worth equals more joy, but it's true, right? It's easy to think if I'm continually ascribing value and worth to something else, how am I going to feel, right? Valuable. How will I secure myself, right? If I give my emotions, my energy, my praise to someone else, I won't have any left over. But with God, the opposite is true, all right? The more you worship, the more you think, the more you praise, the more alive you become, and the more you have to give to those around you. Thankfulness wakes up the soul. It wakes it up, right? Now, I want to feel alive. I want to be happy. I want to feel happy. I want joy, right? We, we, we do. We, and almost everything we do is motivated by that fact, that we want happiness. We want joy, right? And the claim is that Jesus is the only one who actually backs that promise up to give it and can fully make us alive, or as he describes it, overflowing with life. Right, so much joy, so much delight that you're gonna, it's just little bubble up over you, living water. That's the thing. One of the shortcomings of all the other things that we worship and why they can't bring us real joy is that they promise peace and security and satisfaction in the moment, but they are powerless to remove guilt and shame and darkness from our past. Let's just chat about that for a second. See, they prom- things like health and, and prosperity and, and money and cars, they promise se- pleasure, right? They promise things in the present. And that's, that's, they can do that. They can deliver that, right? Kind of impressively sometimes. But they can't remedy anything from your past. And they're powerless to change you into something else, right? See, often our worship of lesser delights is only in reality a coping mechanism in which we are trying to cover things up in our life. So we ascribe worth to entertainment because we feel a sense of escape when we do that. We ascribe worth to popularity because it hides our insecurities. We ascribe worth to money uh, because the thrill of buying it kind of numbs our fears of insignificance, right? The point is, all these things offer some sort of diversion in the present but are powerless to change your past, right? And isn't it often 
the things from your past that block you from enjoying the present? I did this. I did that. I failed here. I blew it there. I, there's no, I can't be a person of joy because that ship has sailed for me because of the things I've done. Isn't that the case? And this, this is what makes Christian joy uniquely superior. Jesus alone claims that he can not only satisfy your deepest joys, deepest joys and longings, but the way he does it is by first dealing with your past, with your sins, right? So you can get rich, you can get, awesome, you can get that awesome husband or wife, right? You can get that great job. All those things powerless to remove the nagging guilt of the things you've done in the darkness that you know and are ashamed of, right? None of those things have the power to change you. Jesus, right, is the only one who ever can bring true joy and peace because there's a larger issue in your search for joy, and it's that you're broken, that there's a brokenness in you, right? And how does he address it? How does he address that brokenness? By taking the brokenness on himself, right, by his life and his death, and by saying from the cross, Father, forgive them. That's in, dude, listen, that sentence, integral to Christian joy. If you don't get that sentence, Father, forgive them, you ain't going to have, you're not going to have it, right? Because we know that Christian, the root of Christian joy is that root, this idea that I deserve something worse than what I'm getting. This is at the root of Christian joy, and it's rooted in Forgiveness, right? Christianity will insist that your great need is not new technology or better government or more education. It's not new rules. It's forgiveness. And if you're honest and not completely blind to your own sin, you feel that in the depth of your soul. The, I mean, the word itself, forgiveness, like calms our hearts, right? At the root of Christian joy is I forgive you. Your debt is forgiven. Your sins are washed away, right? That's the thing about Christian joy and delight. Only the soul that has owned their own depravity and sinfulness can then own the, the delight of God, the worship of God, right? And the forgiveness of God and thankful worship. You have to own this first, right? If you, now, if you've never needed forgiveness, if you've never felt the, those things we were talking about, the terror of darkness, right? right? Then you don't need Christianity and you're fine. But if you're willing to admit you're among the ranks of the broken and sinful, then Christ has good news for you. It's called, called gospel, right? And if you'll say yes to his gospel, then what was once alien, joy, delight, worship, gratitude, floods in like a raging river. It changes the landscape of your life forever, carries you to joys and delights that you never thought possible, right? Isn't it odd that Christians claim the way to lasting joy is first through sorrow, pain, embarrassment? That's called repentance, right? And it's only possible to enter that joy by first going through that sorrow of repentance. And a kind of death is what the Bible calls about it. So look, this chat, man. If you find yourself in a place of joylessness, if the landscape around you feels barren, if you feel stuck in a winter season, like everything looks dead, the light is dim, the shadows are long, I wonder what it would look like if you intentionally began to give thanks to God as a legitimate source of joy in your life. And I wonder how that would affect you in a holistic way. And let me just end today by reminding you of an old Bible story that maybe you remember if you grew up in Bible Kid Church and remember the felt board and all that kind of stuff. When Israel was outnumbered in 2 Chronicles, Chronicles 20. A multiple armies were coming against Israel. And the prophet said, hey, hey, y'all, hey, don't be afraid. The Lord's going to fight this battle for you. Stand firm. Go out and face him in the morning. And God's going to promise victory for you guys, right? And so, the, so here they are on, on this side. Multiple armies are amassing far away, right? And as armies are amassing, they bow down and worship and praise God with a loud voice because they believed, right? Like, wow. So in the morning, the king asks the people for advice. Great idea, right? And, and the people say, well, let's send the worship band first. So maybe not a great idea to add people, people for advice, right? Let's, let's send, I mean, 
right? <laughs> like there's two kinds of people. You know, you get like your <laughs> army people and your, you know, and they dudes packing heat and they're big. And then you got your musical people, you know? You got like artsy fartsy guys that are journaling in the corner and playing guitar, you know? <laughs> like, and we want to send those, we want to, we're going to send those guys first. Okay. Yeah. So we're going to send out the guys with the electric guitars and the gym bass right behind you. Right behind you guys. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Right? Like, just, you got to stay with it for a second. You got to stay with it for a second. It is comical. And the more practical side of me is saying, what a, what a waste. Like, those dudes are dead. You army guys are cowards. Like, this is all wrong, man. This is not going to end well. You know, like, if I was, like, with the king, I'd be like, oh, listen, let's just consider this. Okay? Because this is practically, I mean, I mean, Matt's great, but, you know, we want to send him out just with a guitar, like, you know, Right? You need to feel the vulnerability of those poor saps out in the battlefield singing, <laughs> right? Yeah, if you know the story, God causes a confusion and a sort of ambush. It's kind of weird. The language is weird. Something happens in the armies, multiple armies that are gathering on the other side of the hill, and they, some, and they turn on each other. And you remember like Lord of the Rings and the last one, you know, the one, okay, when he goes up there and all the orcs are killing each other, killing that, right? I wonder where he got that. <laughs> and so over the hill, all of the, those, these armies on the other side of the hill, uh, they're, they, to the last man, dead. And so here, here come these poor musicians up over the hill singing praises, and they come upon a field of thousands and thousands of dead right before their eyes. And those armies had so much wealth that it took, Israel, it took the army of Israel three days to gather all of the wealth, more than they could carry. Three days to go back and forth and gather all the wealth. Look, look, I says, worship does something. Okay? When we place our hopes and joy and security and safety on God, it breaks things loose. It accomplishes things in mysterious and supernatural ways that we could never accomplish on our own. In faith, the Israelites decided to give thanks on a promise that had not yet been fulfilled, not yet been fulfilled, and they worshiped in faith, and God rescued them supernaturally. Okay, so let's just chat, right, because we're intelligent, practical, enlightenment people, okay? I'm not suggesting you show cavalier disregard for danger around you. I'm not suggesting an ignorant bliss of reality. I am suggesting that you put more weight on God's faithfulness than you do the looming danger over the hill, whatever that might be for you. And if we will choose to give thanks and acknowledge his goodness, even when we may not be able to see it or feel it, and even when others may say, you have no reason to give thanks right now, and we choose to trust in those, God comes through in miraculous ways. At least that seems to be the biblical precedent, right? And we, I mean, listen, we've only tapped the surface of this conversation of what it means to delight in God. But let me just ask, what would it look like for you to practically begin to introduce the idea that God is a legitimate source of joy in your life? What would that look like for you? If God became a legitimate source of joy in your daily routine, how would that, how would that play itself out? I mean, think of all the things that we look forward to in our day. Think of all, think, just think of the list. Like, I have this going on in my head all the time. The list of things I have that I need to have a good day. Good day. You know, I have a good day. I'm going to go to the gym, you know. I'm going to eat some good stuff. I'm going to drink a whole lot of coffee, right? I have a list. I have a list of things I have. What if enjoying and delighting yourself 
and the creator of the universe was in that? What if that was amongst your essentials? What would that do to you? What would that do to how you work? What would that do to how you talk to your coworkers? What would that do to how you talk to your family? If delighting in the goodness of God was just a part of your daily diet because you saw him as a legitimate source of goodness. This is the foundation of what we're about here, that we are a people that are increasingly learning how to do this in our hearts and lives, learning how to love God for his own sake, not for what he can give us, learning to love the giver of the gifts over the gifts, right? It's at its root, right? What would gratitude, man, just part is your pattern. Let's stand and pray.